scripture for this morning is John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. You can find that if you need to in the Pewback Bibles in front of you on page 907, the first sentence or so at least, page 907. John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross. Um, technically, I, I'm the worship and I'm the pastor of worship and liturgy. Uh, and every now and then I get the opportunity to preach. And I'm super thankful to have the people on our worship team uh, that can fill in and jump in and lead worship here. Um, Jeff, I'm also thankful for that throwback. Um, <laughs> I really, I did. I, it reminded me of, I, that was one of the first songs that I led worship, like leading in front of a church, uh, in front of a congregation. So that took me back to, uh, just this moment of like a scared 20 year old who's getting up, uh, for the first time to lead worship. So, um, thanks for that. Thanks for that memory. It was a good memory. And I, I'm happy to get to close out our series this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of John, if you've, been, if you've been tracking with us, we've been in the book of John for a while now, and uh, this, is, this is it. This is the end. We're, we're, we've done it. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can celebrate that, and that's good. Um, John is actually my, my favorite of the Gospels. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as a pastor, that, um, but I, it, of all the Gospels, we have the four, you know, the four Gospels, we have this, the three synoptics, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and of all of those Gospels, John, uh, John is my favorite. It's the scope, the, the tone, the insight that John gives us, the pacing, all of it. I, I just, I love it. And if you've been here throughout the series, <clears throat> you know that we've, we've talked about that quite a bit, how, how just different of a, of a book, how different of a Gospel the book of John is, how, how much it differs um, in distinct ways from the Synoptic Gospels. I, I think... The last time I preached this book, uh, or I, the last time I preached, I preached, I think, from John 13, and it was several months ago, and, and I, I think I asked a question about how people feel about, like, movie adaptations and books and that sort of thing, and I, I was thinking of that again as I was preparing to preach, because right now, my wife Erin and I, uh, we're watching all of the Harry Potter movies, and really what's happening is Erin is, like, speed reading the books, and by that I mean she's listening to the audiobooks on double time. 
which to me, that's like a brain melting speed to me. I don't understand people who do that. I know, I think Howard does that too. He listens like double time. I can get like 1.2 and then it's like, I'm not retaining any information. That's it. But she's, she's listening to the books and then we're going back and like watching, watching a movie. And so my point is not to compare books, but I'm not going to get up here and be like, well, actually for the next hour, I'm going to talk about how, you know, Deathly Hollows part one is different from the book. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but what I've, what I've noticed and going back and, and re, rewatching, I've actually not seen all these movies. So watching some of them for the first time, rewatching some of them, um, there's just always one of the features of these movies is there's always an epilogue. There's always something going on at the end of the movie that's kind of like catching you up to speed after kind of the main action of the story happens. There's, there's like an ending to the first part of the story and there's this other scene at the end where Harry and his friends have this conversation where, where loose ends are tied up and, and they kind of, you know, they're starting to try to set things up for the next, the next story. And I was thinking about that epilogues in general and, and an epilogue can make or break a story, I think. Um, it can actually, it can, it can make things better from, from how things resolved in the story, or it can actually like make things worse. Um, there's nothing like a good epilogue. I mean, they, they give further context to the ending. They can help tie up loose ends. They can bring further resolutions that weren't made in the greater story. Uh, the author can give you Notes or narrator can give you more notes, further clarifications, and start to sow seeds for the next chapter or for, for a new story. And so as we look at this text today, I, the reason I mention that is uh, the title of today's sermon is The Epilogue of the Evangelist. Some people, some scholars, they, they think, they believe that the book of John w- was kind of wrapped up with this neat bow at the end of chapter 20. Uh, which it is, but uh, look at chapter 20, and this is verse 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that, that actually sounds like a great way to end a book, right? Jesus did more signs than are written here, and, and then here's the purpose. Here's why I wrote this book, right? Curtains, like that's, that, that, you could end it right there. Um, but there's still actually some loose ends. There's, there's still some things that, that have gone unaddressed. Some people believe that that's actually the true ending of the book, and, and that chapter 21 was added later by like a committee of scribes or scholars uh, or some such, you know, that preserved some oral history from John, and they wanted to just kind of like, you know, tie up these loose ends. And there's a lot we could dig into that. Uh, you know, I, that's, I, I don't hold that view, um, which is in alignment with, with most scholars and most commentators. I believe I speak for the pastors here when I say that, that as well. Uh, there's a lot we could dig into. There's a lot of evidence here for that, and, and we don't have time, though. <laughs> this isn't a seminary class. I've only got about 35 minutes to get through the material. So suffice it to say, it's, a common, it's the commonly held understanding that chapter 21 was originally written by John. Okay, one, one like nerdy seminary thing. This, this, is, this is what you get when I preach. Uh, if Orion didn't like it, he'd stop putting me on the schedule. So I'll do one kind of nerdy seminary thing. We don't have a single manuscript that doesn't include chapter 21. So that, that, just that alone is, is pretty good evidence. But um, so there you go. Hopefully that can satisfy your curiosity as we jump in. The common belief is that John did include this chapter. And... and so it's actually viewed as almost an epilogue to the gospel, to this gospel. 
in this final appearance of Jesus to his disciples in this book. And so that's in this chapter, that's starting in verse one is Jesus's final appearance in this gospel. Uh, John helps tie up some loose ends. Last, excuse me, last week, Howard preached on Peter's restoration from his former failure. And we saw Jesus giving him this specific call to ministry to feed and to shepherd his sheep. And so John offers some resolution to some tension that seems to have existed between himself and Peter. He offers us some author's notes. He give us some, gives us some further clarifications. He takes an opportunity to clear up some rumors that had begun to spread in the early church at the time that he wrote this. And he identifies himself in the story, finally. The author identifies himself as an eyewitness who made several appearances. So chapter 21, I think, is a good example of a good epilogue. And the few verses that we're digging in today are kind of a punctuation mark on that story. My hope today is that beyond understanding why this book was written or exists or, or even learning how it fits into the greater story of God's advancement of the early church and the kingdom of God, which uh, we, we hopefully will get to touch on a little bit today. My hope beyond that is that you see what Peter and what John and what the other disciples saw in this moment. I hope you see the resurrected Jesus who is ever the servant. He, he just prepared and served them a meal. Jesus, the, the good shepherd and the true vine, continuing to disciple, continuing to guide, continuing to lovingly correct. And what Jesus invites his disciples into, what he invites Peter into, and what he invites you and me into today is to follow him. Not out of theological correctness, not out of doctrinal alignment or, or because we have it all figured out, uh, but because we love him. A love that can only exist because he first loved us. And with that in mind, I want to explore this idea with you all today, and then I'll be out of your way. And that's this, that the invitation to follow Jesus is the same for everyone, but the implementation of his plan looks different for each of us. The invitation to follow Jesus is the same for everyone, but the implementation of his plan looks different for each of us. Would you pray with me as we jump in? So Father God, we, we come to you this morning. We've opened your word that we believe came to us uh, from you through the power of your Holy Spirit and, and the pen of John the Evangelist. And this is a word for us today. And, and so God, would you be with us in this moment? Would you um, empower us? Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts through your Holy Spirit to hear from you this morning? God, would you allow us to see familiar things in the text with fresh eyes? God, would you show us individually how you would have us live as a result how you would have us live in light of what these words say. And then God, would you do that same work through unifying this people together in this church and showing us how it is you would have us live and walk and be on mission for you in this world. So God, we ask, we ask for your Holy Spirit power um, to be with us this morning, to lead us into all your truth and to guide us. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll jump into the text. We're going to start with verses 20 and 21. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Peter turned. The first thing we, we see here, and hopefully we, we can relate to, I know I can relate to this, uh, is that Peter here, he's demonstrating for us the ongoing struggle to continue walking in obedience to follow Jesus. He, he's demonstrating this ongoing struggle to, to keep our focus on Christ. Now, just starting right here is kind of strange, right? If you weren't here last week or uh, if you haven't read the first part of 21, it's like we just dropped into the middle of a story, it, almost in the middle of a sentence. Uh, so I want to refresh ourselves on the rest of this chapter. It's early morning. The disciples were, were in Galilee for a feast, for one of the feasts, and they had decided to go fishing. And the best time to go fishing on the Sea of Galilee is at night. So they had been out all night and they hadn't caught anything. And then suddenly Jesus appears on the shore and he tells them to cast their nets again on the other side of the boat. And, and they bring in this huge catch of fish, which is kind of reminiscent uh, for some of them of their first encounter with Jesus, right? And then John in the story, or it says the disciple who Jesus loved, which we'll get to that. But John, the author in the boat, he recognizes that it's Jesus on the shore. He's the first one. And, and as soon as he says that that's, that's who it is, Peter jumps in the water and he swims to the shore about 100 yards. And then they get to shore and Jesus has made them breakfast. And, and after they've shared this meal, Jesus begins this dialogue with Peter. And this dialogue that, that Howard preached on last week, it's this dialogue where three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, which mirrors Peter's trifle denial of Jesus on the night he was crucified, which is grieving for Peter. He's in this place of having this difficult conversation with his savior and he, he's, he's grieved by it. And that leads us up to verse 18, where it says this, this is, Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And so that's where we're, that's where we're picking up this morning. That's, that's what has just been said when we get to verse 20. And Jesus has spent the morning with his disciples. He's had this restorative interaction with Peter where at the end, he gives him a glimpse of his future. He, he shows him what the cost of following him will be. We know that this is a, a, a prophecy of how he's going to die. We can tell by the language that's used here, this, this image of you will stretch out as your hands, they would have known that, to, they would have understood that to be talking about uh, crucifixion. So he, he gives him this image, he gives him this picture of, of how he's going to suffer, of what the cost of following Jesus is going to be like. He wanted him to understand that, that following him with complete devotion would have a cost. Peter was going to be a leader among the apostles. We, we see that throughout uh, the book of Acts. And we know that he went on to do that. He was an incredible leader. He was an, an apostle who helped turn the world upside down for the sake of Jesus. He preached the first gospel message at Pentecost 
and three, over 3,000 people believed. But there was this, this cost that he was going to pay. And this wasn't news to the disciples either. Like Jesus had already told them previously that they were going to suffer for his sake. But total devotion to Jesus and his teachings, it, it comes at a cost. He's reminding him of that and then giving him specifics. And, you know, we, we may not live in a part of the world where, man, it's going to cost you your life. Uh, but you may pay a price professionally, socially, even in your family. There, there can be real costs in our lives when we follow Jesus with complete devotion to his word and to his teachings. It can be a real cost to that in that regard. What's incredible is that we know that after Jesus left his disciples and they, they went on to do this, they went on to turn the world upside down with the gospel, we, we know that Peter got it. Like he understood this message. He understood the cost. If we look at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, he says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then if you turn the page to chapter 4, in verse 12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when this glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And, and the way that that's written, he's saying like in response to suffering. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. And then lastly, if you jumped in verse 19 there, he says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter got it. And he had suffered. At this point when he wrote this, he, he obviously had not been killed for Christ, but he had suffered for Christ's sake for preaching the gospel. He had been imprisoned and he had been beaten. So we know that he he doesn't get it right now, but we know that he gets it later. The turning here, so it says Peter turned. He turned. It, it's clear um, that what that kind of shows us is that in this conversation, at some point, they had been seated around the fire, and, and they were eating, sharing conversation, and then Jesus wanted to have this deeper conversation, this one-on-one -on -one with Peter. And so at some point they got up and they started walking. So they're walking now, probably along the shore. But in this moment, he hadn't gotten it yet. At some point, um, John starts following them as well. So that's, you have Jesus, you have Peter walking, having this conversation, and then you have John following closely behind. And no sooner had Jesus told Peter, follow me. He just said it. He just told him, follow me. No sooner had, he, had Jesus said that than it says Peter turned. 
And one commentator says it like this, the turning of Peter serves to depict for a final time in this gospel, Peter's misunderstanding regarding his calling and the Christian life. Peter had just been commanded, even commissioned to follow Jesus. Why then is he not focused solely on him? So Peter demonstrates this ongoing struggle to continue walking in obedience and following Jesus. He was just told by the resurrected Christ to follow him. And he's already, he's already losing his focus. Jesus wants his total devotion and his focus. And, and so Peter asks a question. It seems innocuous enough. He just turns and John is there. He's just been told his future. He's just been told how he's going to die, how he's going to suffer for Christ. And so the question seems innocuous enough. He, he just turns to John and he says, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? It, 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 it almost sounds like concern. It's like he, he could genuinely be concerned about what's going to happen to John. Well, if I'm going to suffer, is he going to suffer? What's going to happen to him? Man, I don't know if you've ever asked a question um, where you immediately regretted it, like, or you just said something where as soon as it was out of your mouth, it's like, oh gosh, I shouldn't have said that. Like that was, that was really dumb. Um, I tried to think of an example of that. And then I was like, ah, man, I don't know. Then, I, then I'm just saying the thing again that I said that I wish I hadn't said. So I don't know I, if you're like, if I don't know if that's ever happened to you, that's happened to me a lot. You say a thing and then immediately regret it. I, I just imagine like, as soon as, as Jesus responds to Peter, he's like, oh, yeah, I immediately regret saying that. Immediately regret it. it he could have been genuinely concerned, but it's clear from Jesus' response that this question was more rooted in comparison than it was in concern. See, there was this growing competition and tension between Peter and John. Um, there's, there's this meme that I've seen uh, kind of floating around on the internet and it's, it's essentially, it's like the other gospel writers are writing and they get to the part where Peter cuts the guy's ear off. You know what I'm talking about? And so the other gospel writers are like, and then one of the disciples cut off this man's ear and then it cuts to John and it's like, Peter did it. It was Peter. <laughs> like it, it's, there's just so many things like this in, in this book. Like John mentions that he beat Peter to the tomb, right? Like. And I'm faster than, faster than Peter. <laughs> Several things in the book where there's this comparison that's going on between Peter and John that, that the author is actually giving us. He's giving us those comparisons, um, which, yeah, seem kind of like odd, right? And there seems to be maybe a little bit of this, this tension and this competition. And we know from, from other places in John, other uh, gospels, that there are moments when the disciples are kind of like arguing among themselves about like who's the greatest disciple, right? So there's, there's kind of this like jockeying for, uh, for authority or for um, some kind of special place at the table, right? And, and then what are we seeing here? It's like, John's like the disciple who Jesus, who, who Jesus loved was reclining at the table with him and leaning on his chest. Like he was the closest one at the table, like literally had the seat at the table. There's all these things. And so it's natural that Peter would start to compare himself here. This was already happening. This wasn't this brand new thing. This was something that the disciples were doing continuously. And Jesus was constantly having to like try to teach them and like correct them out of that. And so this isn't any different. And he would compare himself there. He wanted to know if John would have to suffer in the same way. Well, if I'm going to have to suffer like that, what's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to this guy? He wanted to compare their paths 
He's likely wondering, man, is, is it going to be easier for John? Is it going to be harder for John? Like, which one of us is getting the easier thing here? And, and Jesus is very quick to squash that thinking. So look at verse 22. He says this, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So Jesus rebukes Peter for making this comparison. He, he wants his lessons of devotion and, and humility to sink in. Before his death, as I said, the disciples had been arguing about who was the best disciple. And, and the reality is that in order for this new church movement to have any chance, they were going to have to work together in, in complementary ways to move forward. They were going to have to do things together in unity. And, and so Jesus is trying to squash this competitive spirit once and for all so that it doesn't cripple that movement. Peter and John had, had different jobs to do in the kingdom. They had different paths. They would suffer in different ways for his sake. But the call to follow me is the same. It's the same to both of them. As an aside here, I think it's, it's kind of a, a beautiful thing to point out. The way that the comparison happens between these two disciples throughout the book uh, so John is often, if you, if you look closely, John is often depicted as someone who's quick to gain insight. And then Peter is often depicted as someone who's quick to act. He's quick to action. And, and this kind of differentiation, it actually ends up characterizing their individual commissions and in ministry, as well as their complementarity to one another. So Peter kind of ends up being the de facto leader of the apostles. He, he's preaching the first gospel message. He, he's doing lots of active missionary work, and, and yet he dies a martyr a long time before John does. John becomes known and revered as an insightful evangelist who lives into old age, and, and he lives long enough to write this gospel. And, and so they had these different jobs and these different paths, but, but they had the same invitation. The call to discipleship, the invitation to follow Jesus is the same for every believer. And it means the same thing. It means this unwavering devotion to Jesus. But the path for each Christ follower is unique and is commissioned by God. The invitation to follow Jesus is the same for everyone, but the implementation of his plan looks different for each of us. Your path is not my path. Your suffering is not my suffering. Our lived experiences will be different. The work that God has for you and I to do in the kingdom of God is not always the same. But we are all called to follow Jesus. As the Apostle Paul explains, at the same time, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And there is still one body, spirit, faith, Lord, and baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's from Ephesians 4. We are unified in Christ. We are united in our mission. And then we are uniquely called and gifted and equipped to fulfill God's purpose for each of us. Jesus is playing chess, not checkers. On a checkerboard, every piece has the same goal. It looks the same and it can move the same. But in chess, while every piece has the common goal of working toward victory, they each serve a different purpose. They have different movesets. 
It's the same reason the church is called the body of Christ, that each member serving a different and unique yet necessary role. And Paul gives us a great picture of this in 1 Corinthians. He's addressing an issue regarding the distribution of spiritual gifts here, but I think it still applies to this. And this is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it not any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, which are more, I'm sorry, God has so composed the body, here we go, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that There may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So we see this picture of many members of the body looking very different, having different functions, but being united, being united in the goal, being united in the cause, being united in the work that Christ has for us in the world, though that is unique individually. And so when we do what, what Peter is doing here, he's making this comparison. And comparisons for us, whether that's because we think we like someone else's role better. I mean, I wish I was doing that work in the church or that work in the kingdom. Or it's because we believe that we're suffering or we're having a harder experience than people around us are, right? We're looking at someone suffering or lack of and thinking, man, why am I suffering in this way? And they aren't. Like, what is God doing here? But these kinds of comparisons, like this comparison that Peter wanted to make, it it can lead to apathy in following Jesus. It can lead to ineffectiveness in kingdom ministry. It can lead to disunity in the church. Jesus wants to squash that, whether it's a spirit of competition or comparison. He's trying to root that out in the beginning of his church, and he wants to root it out of us today, too. When Hal, our oldest son, was born, um, I remember... Aaron and I just struggling in the beginning with having a newborn and kind of managing that whole season and just the, I don't know, just having arguments and things like that that were just, it seemed more stressful and there's a lack of sleep and things are more difficult. But what we kind of realized in that season, thankfully, at some point, was that we were comparing ourselves to each other. Like these, these uh, disagreements or these arguments or these things that were happening were coming out of this place of like, hey, I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing? Like, what are you doing? 
There's this place of comparison when in reality, it's like, man, we both had a lot of things on our plate in that season and had a lot of responsibilities and had a lot of things we're doing, but it's really easy to really focus on those things that I'm doing and then compare myself to what I think someone else is doing or not doing. We want to root that out. At this moment in time, Peter was standing at a turning point. He, he had this past and, and this present and his future kind of all laid out in front of him. Like Jesus is bringing up the past, right? But he's meeting with him in the moment, in the present. He's giving him commands in the moment, in the present. And he's even giving him a glimpse of his future. In, in his past, he was maybe a bit overzealous at times. Uh, but man, no, no one would have doubted his love for Jesus earlier in the book. He was bold and he was quick acting. And when Jesus' first call to follow me came, Peter dropped everything he was doing and followed Jesus. But in his past, he failed too through, through his denial. He denied Jesus, denied even knowing him on the night Jesus was killed. And then even now in this present moment, even though Jesus had, had restored him in front of the other disciples and was commissioning him on this ministry to feed and shepherd the church, I'm sure that that sting of, of failure was probably still lingering. And then in the midst of that tension, he gets a glimpse of this future that I mean, doesn't sound super awesome, right? One of martyrdom. But, but we also know from, from the book of Acts, we know that it was a future of effective ministry. It was a future of effective church building, If we pretend that in this moment, Peter's past, present, and future are like one of those maps on the mall that say, you are here, right? If we look at it that way, if we think about um, his experiences in those moments, I wonder where we would place ourselves on that map. Would you place yourself at the start of Peter's walk, like before putting faith in Jesus or, or hearing the first call to follow Christ, maybe in the middle after his failure or maybe in the future where he's following the path that God has laid out for him. No matter where you find yourself today, the invitation is the same. The invitation to you today is the same. Jesus invites you to follow him. Maybe you're like Peter when he was in the boat, just minding his own business when Jesus called him the first time and you haven't put your faith in Jesus. So the invitation to you today is to follow Jesus. Maybe you're in the middle part of the story. Maybe you put your faith in Jesus, but walking that path, actively following him is proving to be harder than you thought. Maybe you feel like you've messed up or have had a series of mess ups. The invitation is the same. The invitation from Jesus is follow me. And even if you don't find yourself there, you're actively following Jesus and you're walking the path that he's laid out for you. Man, the invitation is to be encouraged and to continue doing that, continue in that work of following him. Are you following Jesus today? Are you following him actively or are you following him passively? Like, I believe in Jesus, so that means I'm following him or like my parents do that, so I'm covered. Following Jesus is a daily active choice and the progression looks like this. So it starts with belief, starts with belief in who Jesus is and what he's done. And then that moves into this place where we walk in trust and obedience. We learn from his teachings and we follow them. We act like him. We follow his example. 
And then all of that, all of that requires this abiding fellowship. This, it's not just this outward thing that's happening. It's this internal thing that's happening as well, where we abide in Jesus. He said earlier in the book of, of John, he said, I'm the true vine and you are the branches. He tells us to abide in him. It's this internal work that's happening that has an external result. And following Jesus does not have to be some remarkable thing. I think there's a lot of materials out there about following Jesus that are like about changing the world. And it's this big idea. It's this big remarkable thing. And that's a, that's a tall order. And I'm not saying that that's not what we just should strive for. We shouldn't have our sights on that as the church of Jesus Christ. But it, it does make for good marketing. It can make for interesting reading. Being a boring Christian doesn't sell books. But it's what we're called to. The call to follow Jesus is not always to do some extraordinary thing that's going to change the world. In and of itself, it's a call to plant roots where you are. It's a call to faithfully pursue a life of abiding fellowship with Jesus in full view of those around you. Paul urges us to live a quiet life. To live a quiet life. There's, there's a passage in Jeremiah that talks about um, building a house and planting gardens and doing things for the welfare of the city. It's not always this extraordinary thing. So if, if you're a stay-at-home mom, stay, stay at home, follow Jesus in front of your family. If, if you're higher up on a corporate ladder, like follow Jesus in a way that impacts your workplace, that impacts your employees. Whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a nanny or a lawyer, an engineer, an entrepreneur, a social worker, a retiree, a student, your, your call first and foremost is to follow Jesus. You plant yourself where you are and you follow Jesus there. Pray for contentment in both your suffering and your success so that you won't fall into that trap of comparison. And maybe your question is, how do I know if I'm doing this? And there are markers, markers of those who are truly following Jesus. People who are truly following Jesus have an ever-increasing faith. Faith in God's ability, in his sovereignty, in his day-to-day care and provision for us. This is how one commentator says that we have embraced a reductionism that acknowledges faith in Christ is essential for salvation, but largely ignores the necessity of living by faith thereafter. How many of us really live each day with a confident trust in God to do what he says he will do? How many of us take him at his word and act with the expectation that he will be faithful? This is the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to exercise as we seek to follow him. And of course, some, such faith does not suddenly appear in our lives. It is something that grows over time as we read, mark, and inwardly digest God's word with the help of the Holy Spirit and prayerfully act on it in obedience of faith. When we do this, God uses the needs, opportunities, and circumstances of our lives as a training ground to help us grow in faith, fulfill his purposes, and bring him glory. At the heart of following Jesus, then, is walking by faith in God, just as he did, and not living by reliance on our own limited wit, wisdom, and resources. Are you seeing your faith increase as you follow Jesus? In addition to faith, we we have a growing hope. We have a growing hope that is rooted not in this life, but in a race well run in an eternity with Jesus. We know what our future holds. We don't know how that's going to happen like Peter got in this moment, but we know what our future of eternity looks like with Jesus. 
And we have hope in that when we follow him. We have a growing love for Christ. Growing love for Christ, for his church. We have a growing love for fellow believers. We have a love that moves to action. The same commentator says this about love for God. In the Bible, the essence of loving God is to give ourselves fully to him who first loved us, to surrender to his love and devote ourselves to him. That is the point of all of our heart and all our mind, all our soul and all our strength. Just as a woman gives herself to a man who deeply loves her and asks for her hand in marriage, so we are called to give ourselves to the God who loves us and has redeemed us at the price of his own dear son. Far from being an arbitrary demand, this command is an entreaty of love. So as we follow Jesus, we should have increasing faith. Our faith should be increasing in God's ability, a hope that grows and a love that grows. And finally, we see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit in our own lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And if that sounds hard to do, uh, that's because it is in our own power. I think another thing that we see here from this text is this is before the Holy Spirit has, has come. It's hard to do in our own power. If we only knew the post-Pentecost Peter, I think we'd be shocked by pre-Holy Spirit Peter. We'd be shocked. Romans 5, 5 says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This means that the love that we are to have for Christ, the love that compels us to follow him and is available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You are a post-Pentecost Christian. You have the spirit of the living God inside you, guiding you into all truth. So if it sounds hard to do, it is on our own, but we pray for this power from the Holy Spirit to persevere in following Jesus. Verse 22 ends this scene. It's kind of like the end of the movie where the camera pans out and text starts coming up on the screen talking about what happened after verse 23, I'm sorry. It says this. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And so... We have this moment where we kind of disconnect from the narrative. We kind of disconnect from, from this scene. It's like John is writing in the future. He's saying these things. And I think it's important for us to continue to look at this. We're wrapping up this entire book. It gives us context for everything he said up to this point. And so what John shows us here is that apparently this saying of Jesus had been confused. Uh, it, there was this rumor that was spreading that John was going to live until Jesus returned. And so John was taking this opportunity in the epilogue to dispel that rumor. He, knowing that if he died while the church believed that, they, they could go into a frenzy, right? Thinking that this was the signal of Christ's return. And so he takes the time to dispel that rumor with his ep epilogue. He also identifies himself, the author, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was, like I said, he was well revered in the church at the point when he wrote this gospel down. He, he would have been like, if you think about it, he, he would have been like a living legend. 
right, he, in the church because he outlived all the other disciples. He lived to old age. He was revered. He walked with Jesus. He was present at Jesus's death. He was made the guardian of Jesus's mother. He was the first disciple to arrive at the empty tomb. These things are starting to click now why he included them. There are so many different ways that he could have described or identified himself. As I was the disciple who, beat, disciple who beat Peter to the tomb. He could have called himself that, but he didn't. He, he could have used any of these things that he was known for, that he was revered for in the church. Instead, he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. I think in our Sometimes in our understanding, or even just the way that that reads in English, um, it kind of feels like a flex, almost. Like, I was the disciple that Jesus loved, but that's not what he's saying. I was just one of the disciples that Jesus loved. You know who else was a disciple that Jesus loved? All the other disciples. You. Me. Me. This way of referencing himself in the story is John's way of saying, I'm just another one of the disciples that Jesus loves, nothing more. Someone who received grace and salvation from Jesus Christ. Which, to me, it makes it seem like, man, this lesson for Peter here was, was taken to heart by John as well. So finally, after months and, and months of preaching through this book, we're to the very last verse that says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And it's certainly the most poetic of the Gospels. The, the wording of this is both a period and an exclamation point. One notable thing about John's Gospel is there's, there's not a lot of action. It's not a ton of action. Um, it's like longer sequences of dialogue and that sort of thing. There's, there's not a lot of moving from scene to scene. Some of the other gospels are a lot more fast paced and there's a lot happening in them. There's not, there, there seems to almost be kind of, there's a lot of historical detail and account that's left out intentionally. John tells us that all the books in the world couldn't contain the stories of what Christ did. There aren't enough words to describe the word made flesh. But John chose these words to describe Jesus. Let's look back at some of the things that he told us. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the only one truly capable of satisfying and sustaining you. Jesus is the light of the world. He, he came into darkness and he revealed God the Father to this world covered in darkness. He is the door protecting his sheep, keeping them secure. Jesus is the good shepherd, ever guiding, ever leading, ever serving and tending his flock. Jesus is the resurrection and the life and the way, the truth, and the life. Nothing that was made was not made apart from him. He overcame the power of death and the grave to rescue his people from sin and death and give them new life and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus is the true vine capable of giving and sustaining life for all those who follow and remain and abide in him. John may not have written everything down that Jesus did, but he chose his words carefully. And chapter 20, verse 30, 31 says he did that so that we might believe. I'll close with this. 
Peter and John both ran the race set before each of them. They both answered the call to follow Jesus and they did so on their own unique paths. Their ministries were complementary to one another and they were kingdom building in different ways. Peter's efforts led to the rapid spread of the gospel and the planting of many churches, churches we can trace our history to in the church. John's ministry lived on in other ways, namely in his recording of this gospel. This gospel was witnessed by John. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It, it, was, it was taken and then it was copied for generations. It was translated into other languages. It was eventually translated into English. And then it was published when the printing press was invented. We, we have the printed words of God as delivered through the mouthpiece of John the Evangelist in the book you hold in front of you right now because of the obedience of John. These two men as well as the other disciples, in answering the invitation of Jesus, they not only turned their, their world upside down, they made it possible so that generations and generations of people could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We who believe today have done so as a result of their obedience. So what will God do through your answer to this invitation to follow Jesus? What, God, what might God want to do in our community, in our cities if all of us here at King's Cross were to take this invitation seriously, we were to walk in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, setting aside the sin that so easily entangles us, avoiding the pitfalls of comparison to one another and how our paths and how our sufferings look differently. And what if we answered the call to live lives completely devoted to Jesus and his mission and we weren't distracted by secondary issues or, or by preferences in the church or, or anything that is less relevant than following Jesus. Following Jesus is easy when you understand what he saved you from. Scripture teaches us that he brought us from death to life. It's easy when we understand what he saved us from. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. We receive rest in him, he tells us. And it's the other stuff that comes with it though, right? It's the other stuff. It's the suffering. It's the persecution, it, it, the ridicule that we may experience. But all of that is worth it to make God and his glory known. I'll end with this quote on the book of John. It says this, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ serves as an invitation for the disciples of Jesus who are invited to participate in their fullness, his death and the new life he provides, and therefore to participate in the fullness of life in God through Christ and by the Spirit. Ultimately, just as Christ gave his life as a gift to his children, so the Christian gives their life as a gift to their God. In this way, all Christians are called to a sort of martyrdom, becoming a living sacrifice for God, for the glory of God. The invitation to follow Jesus this morning is the same for all of us, but the implementation of his plan looks different. Would you pray with me? So God, this morning, um, we come to you in humility, understanding that in our sin, in our brokenness, 
We were at war with you. We were in rebellion against you. And that did not merit saving. There was nothing we did, nothing we could have done. And yet you have lavished your grace and your mercy upon us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the tearing of the veil in the temple so that we might experience fullness of life lived in your presence. And so God, we are humbled by the fact that you've done that. We are thankful for your grace and your mercy this morning. God, I pray that as we reflect, as we um, consider your words here, and as we just think about the entirety of this book, God, that we would believe. God, we would continue in our belief that we would continue to grow in faith and in love for Jesus Christ this morning. God, that we would be a church who is unified around that. God, that we would be people who understand that we are all called to follow Jesus, even if it looks differently, God, that we wouldn't be caught up in comparisons, but would have love for one another. God, ultimately, we want you to do your will in and through this church. God, we want to follow the path that you've set before us as individuals and as a church. And so, God, would you give us the, uh, the clarity the understanding, the wisdom to know what that looks like, to do those things, to walk in faithfulness, following Jesus, loving you, loving the world around us, reaching lost souls for the sake of the gospel. So God, as we end our time here this morning, um, God, I pray that we would... We would worship you in, in a, with fullness, with a robustness of just understanding who you are, what it is you've done, what it is you're calling us to and towards. God, would you fill our hearts with your love even now, even right now in this moment, this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name.